Luca Dykes, the founder and managing director of Harder Air. Thanks for coming on the show. In times like this, what made you found a, a startup? Oh, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Andreas. It's a really interesting time, I think, uh, in with digital technology generally, but I think particularly the area that we work in, which is primarily in the health sector. Uh, we're in a situation now where we've got uh, more and more data, kind of interesting kinds of data that we're generating about the health system generally and about patients. We're starting to increase kind of a lot more opportunities we have with modern technology, with things such as artificial intelligence, and really what we can do to better care for patients and to get a kind of greater sense of how all these systems come together and start to integrate together. I think really the, the reason why I founded Art AI is we've been working uh, locally in South Australia with the institutions here, with the universities, with, with SA government and, and SA health locally, and we really realized that the work that we were doing, I think, had a had a lot of potential. We were starting to figure out how to integrate with health systems. We were looking at, for example, some real-time operational AI. And uh, myself and the team uh, got together and thought, well, there's probably a great amount of opportunity here, both commercially to kind of look at what we could do as a business and potentially grow and grow some value in the local sector. But I think being able to bring these technologies together and really give them a place so that they could mature, they could actually be there, they could start delivering value to customer, and they could start helping better the healthcare system. So uh, so effectively, we that's formed Hard AI about a year ago, and we've been working uh, locally in, in South Australia to um, to really kind of better healthcare, particularly with what we can do with modern data integration and some of the real potential that we're starting to see from artificial intelligence. With hard AI for the listener, what are the the top challenges you're trying to to solve? Probably the key things that we have identified in, in South Australia is there is a huge amount of health data. There's hundreds of different data systems inside SA Health at the moment. These range from more of your traditional data systems, such as electronic medical records, such as patient administration systems, to blood diagnostics, to pharmacy systems, to costing and HR and workforce systems, even to more of the more kind of the nuanced start systems, such as uh, implantable devices and medical devices and wearable devices and these kind of things. So really, there's uh, there's a huge amount of data, but um, unfortunately, the health system has been a little bit lethargic when it comes to really implementing innovation, particularly with, with digital innovation. So we're seeing a lot of the potential from this data um, not being realized. We've got data that's kind of sitting in systems that's not kind of being operationalized. We've got a lack of integration between these data systems. And I think as a result of that, we haven't been able to address some of the key problems inside the health system at the moment. So certain, certainly there are some fundamental problems just around data access itself, and just in terms of what we can do with uh, evaluating the health system, doing benchmarking, doing um, KPIs for the health system. But really, we haven't even been able to then leverage some of the key um, the key challenges, like some of the key opportunities to address some of the key challenges inside SA Health. So certainly, um, I think even in, in across Australia, we're seeing issues to do with ambulance ramping. And, um, and ramping has been really interesting for us to look at because there's a lot of aspects to why we get these issues effectively with the supply chain of health. That is, that is why do we have patients that stay um, potentially longer than they need to? Are we able to understand variability in, in demand, variability in, in care? Some different kinds of patients have different, different requirements. They have different needs for the healthcare system. And at the moment, we're not really able to understand what is driving down to an individual patient level that kind of variability. So certainly there is this one aspect of being able to evaluate the healthcare system and see whether we can understand that level of variability to a, to a greater level of detail, and then how we can potentially address or how we can optimize uh, how we kind of manage different kinds of patients in relation to their need. So I think that's one aspect is really around this, this patient, uh, this kind of ambulance ramping, patient flow, 
bed block capacity planning issue. And probably the other issue that we really try to look at as well, it's more of this uh, this real-time patient monitoring, really trying to pick up uh, potentially when patients deteriorate. If we can pick that up ahead of time, I think that's a real great opportunity to bring care to the right kinds of patient at the right time. I think the area that we're probably most keen to see where we can add value is in, is in critical care and in intensive care unit. So we very often see patients in an in intensive care unit that will uh, be stable for a long period of time and then may just based in changes to their status or changes to the environment, they may, they may deteriorate and they may deteriorate quite suddenly. And this can lead to things like sudden cardiac arrest or sudden death. So ideally we'd be in a situation where with the huge amounts of data that we have, particularly from things such as integrated observation machines that are taking real-time measurements of patients all of the time, we could actually pick up with something like an early warning score, this concept of patient deterioration. And even if we can get that, say, 10 or 20 minutes before a nurse would typically pick it up, that gives us a real big opportunity to bring a medical emergency response team to that patient ahead of time. So I think there's a great amount of, um, a great amount of value and, and opportunity that could be that could be gained by integrating with some of the data systems that are there that are that are not being fully utilized, bringing modern analytics and modern artificial intelligence to areas such as patient monitoring and optimization of resources that we have. Going by the name hard AI, and what you've described on your website, it is that AI is really one of your core capabilities. What can you tell us about artificial intelligence and, and how you're using this with your health deployments? It's been quite interesting. And, and yes, we, we're really formed from being an artificial intelligence company. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of interest in, in what AI is and, um, and what this really means in terms of what we can do with AI. Fundamentally, yes, we started off in AI, but we probably did realize initially that one of the issues was how we can actually operationalize data. But um, now that we've done some of that work in, in bringing the data alive in terms of this data in motion, what can we now do with, with modern artificial intelligence? Uh, well, here are a few things that we can do. Um, I would say probably what we can do in terms of understanding variability about the patient. So coming back to this concept of, of demand modeling and, and variability in patient demand. So for some of the services that we work in, uh, particularly the SA Virtual Care Service, which is one of the services that we're primarily based in, uh, we have a lot of these patients that come through the service. In this, uh, in this particular health service, patients are going to the SA Virtual Care Service as a surrogate mechanism for them going to an emergency department. So in this case, patients are going through um, virtual care service, usually they're with an ambulance. So typically in this workflow, patient would call up um, a triple zero to make an emergency call. An ambulance response team would go out to, to see the patient and then they'd contact the SA virtual care service. The goal of this service is to, uh, is to help provide a level of hospital care to patients when they're with, still with the ambulance team, with the paramedic team. Now, what we want to be able to do in this service is to make a decision about whether this patient should go to an emergency department or should go to some um, other health service or whether that patient should be diverted away from hospital services and potentially go to a primary care center or, or go to a general practitioner. Now, that's a little bit tricky because when we are looking at a patient uh, through telehealth, when they're with a paramedic and they're seeing a, a clinician through telehealth and they're with the FA virtual care service, we really don't have a huge amount of information about that patient. We've got some information that the paramedic provides us, there's some information in the electronic medical record system, and there's information in, in these other data systems in this kind of from patient history, from patient contact in the healthcare system. It's a little bit difficult to use in that context because uh, the clinician or the clinical operator or the clinical nurse that is providing that service doesn't really have the ability easily to go into all of these different data systems and to bring that information together and then to say, oh, this, this patient's likely to be likely it's all they've got this kind of profile so 
there's a real opportunity to use artificial intelligence and, and patent detection systems to be able to look through all of these different data systems and to provide some information that would be not readily available otherwise. And so in this particular health service, the FDA virtual care service, what we look to do is we look to go through um, the entirety of that particular patient's medical records and medical records of effectively every other patient that we have integrated with to understand what is driving variability about that patient? What is it about that patient that would determine that they should go to the emergency department or should go to some some alternate um, care pathway, some alternate help service? Um, what's driving that patient's variability in terms of how long they're likely to stay in the service or um, what kinds of resources they need or, or what their outcomes likely to be? Artificial intelligence in this context is able to read through and process huge amounts of information, millions of medical records, and help us understand what is driving the different outcomes for these kinds of patients. It's really able to kind of build a characteristic of that, those patients. And the other aspect that we do it in kind of ICU monitoring is kind of real-time monitoring of these patients. And in that case, it's very similar. We've got live streams of data rolling in um, all of the time, multiple times a second. And we want to be able to then look at what is it about the data that we see now that's potentially um, indicative that in the future an adverse event's likely to happen to that patient. So in that case, I think artificial intelligence, there's a, there's a pattern recognition component to it. There is this optimization component. Um, there is this forecasting component. So we can actually look at the data we have and say, what could potentially happen to this patient given what we know um, from the data? You know, those approaches that you just described, they seem pretty general and, and also applicable for other jurisdictions or other states or other countries. What's your view on giving those great, you know, capabilities to other, to other health care providers or, or organizations or states and, and governments, even what's your view on that? How scalable it is, is that, and we're going to dive into the architecture maybe a bit later, but just keen to get your thought because obviously health and healthcare is pretty important to all of us, especially the people who have kids or parents that uh, need more and more care as they get older, right? I think they are um, they are quite transferable. The, the techniques that we've developed in these particular uh, contexts are, are relatively transferable. And I think we are seeing that, um, certainly as we talk about architecture a little bit later, that the kind of architectural patterns that we've deployed to integrate data and to deploy artificial intelligence um, does mean that now we can we can deploy these in other contexts relatively um, relatively easily. Of course, the words are understanding of, of different contexts and different business domains. But the general architecture does allow us to integrate with a different, with a range of different data systems relatively generally. So whether these are traditional data systems, relational databases, or whether these are non-relational databases such as document stores, perhaps these are graph databases or, or message streams of data, our ability to use really a, a services middleware architecture to integrate with and arbitrary data systems does mean that we can go into a, a different sector or we can operate in a, in a different business or a different kind of domain. Um, and we can learn about the different data systems that are in that domain and then relatively generically integrate with the kinds of primary data systems that exist. So we may be in a situation that or perhaps we go and uh, go and engage with with resource sector, or we go and engage with, say, logistics sector. Um, certainly, they'd be collecting data of a variety of, of types, and they'd be stored in a variety of, of different data systems. We can, through a services-based approach, a services-oriented architecture or a microservices architecture, um, integrate with those data systems throughout our services stack, um, then be able to really harmonize that data. So we can kind of standardize that data and uplift it through that integration um, capability. 
And then um, once we've got it into that that form, that's a pattern that we know will transfer relatively well to the kinds of artificial intelligence that we're using. So now, now back to the systems that you mentioned earlier, they integrate with, to be honest, every time I heard you mentioning one of the systems, my shoulders got a little bit more tense because I, I'm thinking of all the sensitive data that uh, is in those systems and, and you're exposed to. And then on the other hand, we've got the ethical AI, right, which is another topic. So how are you managing the use of potentially sensitive health information and how have you managed security compliance and, and audit responsibilities uh, around that, including test data, for example, right, before you deploy into production? It's a really great, uh, great series of questions there. And it's been very central to how we've developed, particularly over the last, and I'd say in the last four years, um, certainly before we incorporated and we were researching these methods, we were trying to understand what we really needed to do to, do, to deploy in a government health context, working with government organizations. The raw answer though is that there is a, a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure these systems are, are secure as, as we've seen with, uh, for example, the kind of re recent breaches through Optus, which of course were, were terrible. Um, but you can imagine the, the effect that would have if this was sensitive patient information. This would be kind of information about patient medical records, um, sensitive diagnosis about patients. So we, we take the management of that information very seriously. Firstly, just as a kind of cultural aspect, got a lot of policies in terms of how we have to work with sensitive information, including what we have to, what we're obliged to do from a state and federal law and policy and, and, uh, and regulation perspective. But how have we gone about actually managing that? Well, through a few approaches. So one of those is, is that we have a lot of constraint in our system. So for example, when we are integrating with a range of different data systems and we do integrate with, with several data systems at the moment, we want to make sure that as we're integrating with those systems, that integration is well-defined and well-understood. As we do integrate with those systems, we don't want it to be Kind of this all access and, and all data is exposed to all users. We want to be able to expose really just the, the minimum amount of information we need for the kind of processing and to the, the minimum amount of users. The service middleware construct or this services architecture that we introduced earlier is really effective for this because it allows us to build a lot of those cross-cutting concerns into that, into that services layer. For example, we can build a, uh, an interface mechanism to those databases that only, only allows us to interact with data that, that we define, we kind of prescribe which data can be interacted with. We're able to then add additional constraint around how often that data can be interacted with and how much data can actually process and be processed at any one time or over a period of time. We can constrain which kinds of users based on which kind of permissions can actually interact with those particular data sources. And we have a range of uh, logging and monitoring and observability capabilities that really allow us to see who has accessed that data at what time? What are the patterns in terms of that accessibility? Well, they do vary throughout the day or whether there is any unusual patterns in the behavior of that data access and observability tools that allows us to actually continuously monitor that in real time. So we've built a whole range of these, particularly these observability capabilities that allows us to see in real time who is accessing what, who is active in the system, what they are accessing, uh, how much data they've processed, as well as um, some early ability to actually detect abnormal behavior. So we can actually detect when that, when we've got network traffic spikes or users are potentially accessing things that they shouldn't be. So we've got this real operational capability to model those systems. And then we've also deployed a range of uh, security analysis and vulnerability analysis tools that allows us to pick up out-of-date software or particular, particular kinds of software vulnerabilities. 
So it's this kind of ability for us to make sure that the system is, is well monitored. We can really observe what's happening. We've got these constraints so that the system really should only operate within the bounds of those constraints and it should be relatively constrained by default. And then security analysis tools and vulnerability analysis tools means that we've got a good sense of where our system is, is secure, where we have potential risks in the system and what we then need to do to address those risks. Uh, there's certainly a lot of technical work has gone into it, but uh, that really does line up to the kind of rigorous obligations we have from a, from a law policy and, and regulation perspective as well. Great. Thank you, Luca. That uh, seems like a pretty comprehensive approach. So diving into the model training, what I'm always interested in, how do you keep uh, new data coming in to like improve the, the models? Is that something you've, um, you've solved in the development phase and the QA phase? Because you sort of need to be really careful to separate those different data sets, right? To not create some, some bias and, um, yeah, to really degrade your model, really, you could say. This idea about uh, pathological data or pathological AIs is really interesting. So certainly the situation we want to avoid is a AI deployment that is has got the capabilities to be real-time and can update and learn in real-time, but for whatever reason, inadvertently, it picks up some pathology in data or pathology in its optimization, and suddenly that pathological AI is, is deployed in practice and is in front of patient care. I mean, that would be a, a disastrous scenario. So we do have to have uh, quite a bit of process around how we actually manage the deployment of new AI models and um, what goes into the actual AI modeling itself to try to try to mitigate those approaches. Uh, so as, as a fundamental, uh, there's probably, at the moment, I see two different ways of deploying new AI. At the moment, one of those is this. We deploy a kind of relatively static model at some interval of time, daily or whatever, whatever, whatever is appropriate. And then we can deploy more of those at a more of a static situation, kind of statically update them every day. The other kind of approach is actually doing real-time learning. So we do deploy one or more models, potentially again, every, every day. But during, after they've been deployed, during the time that they're active, they can actually learn further. So they can actually kind of do this kind of real-time online learning. So at the moment, we're really only doing the formal, formal approach. It's a little bit more, a bit, little bit more constrained for us, but we are exploring the latter approach as well. But even with the former approach, we do need to have a level of process and quality assurance to ensure that as we are deploying the new static versions of those models, that they have been assessed and that they don't have those kind of pathologies that we, we mentioned. The key way we're doing that at the moment is we do have a deployment pipeline that allows us to test those analytical models are under a range of different assumptions and scenarios and to see how they perform. We can then review that testing with, for example, test data or simulated data as part of a, a testing pipeline, an integrated and unit testing pipeline. And then uh, we'll have an administrator that will then go and review the results of that testing pipeline to provide a level of assurance before we actually deploy that model into practice. So certainly I think that um, dependency management or that supply chain management approach of how we actually deploy an analytical or an AI model is important such that we don't inadvertently deploy a potentially pathological model. Excellent. Back a bit more to the topic of infrastructure. In, in a world where I see it at the moment where, you know, most organizations go either with Azure or with AWS, I think you used a little bit of a different approach. You specifically chose a managed pass, right? A managed platform as a service. Can you just walk the listener and, and me through what sort of the, the thinking was behind to go different and not falling into that hype or the trend that really doing your own undifferentiated heavy lifting, which is probably a, a bad idea, but yet 
the majority of organizations, I think, do that. It's a really, I think, quite a complex question. And there's a lot of nuance to it that I think we could spend a whole topic really describing. So we're currently with Microsoft Azure in terms of our deployment environment with our cloud resources. And inside Microsoft Azure, we're using uh, Microsoft Azure Red Hat OpenShift, which is our, our container orchestration platform. There's a lot of reasons why we where we kind of choose that as a deployment pattern. I think you've kind of pointed on a few of those. One of those is that by focusing on containers as our as our deployment mechanism, it gives us a lot of generic nature in which we can deploy those. Containers are kind of, you, they can be really whatever you want them to be. They've got a lot of the capabilities of effectively a virtual machine or kind of almost a in-kernel virtual machine, and you can deploy them effectively everywhere. But I think it also speaks to, I think, what it means for developers and engineers to have a little bit of flexibility with the kinds of infrastructure and the kinds of tooling they want to work with. So I guess uh, I guess I'll frame it like this. At the moment, we we can use our Microsoft Azure Red Hat OpenShift uh, orchestration platform to deploy just just about everything. I mean, in that environment, we've got we've got services, middleware, we've got analytical web servers, we've got application servers, we've got infrastructure servers, logging, monitoring, observability servers, security servers that have all been containerized and deployed in that environment. And because they are using fairly generic container technologies, we can deploy those in, in Azure or, or Google Cloud or, or AWS, and we can transfer between those environments relatively effectively. In contrast to that, I think if we were to use more of the fundamental cloud uh, cloud resources, such as if we were using Azure Synapse, for example, for our for our artificial intelligence, that would be potentially, I think there's a lot of benefit to be gained from those kind of resources because they are quite quick to work with, they're very quick to prototype, and they integrate well with the rest of the stack. But I think they're also quite limiting if you're a developer or an engineer, because I think you can only really get so much out of those basic cloud resources before you need to, to bring your development team in and actually build out some of your own software. Now, you don't want to be in a situation where you're building, like you say, this, you know, this kind of undifferentiated software or potentially this heavily differentiated software such that you're in a situation that you're, you're managing all this complexity yourself rather than using a complexity that's, that's already available. But I think we're also seeing a, a push in the other direction where a lot of these low-code, no-code solutions, yes, they are powerful out of the box. But suddenly you hit this ceiling in terms of the kinds of capability and the kinds of flexibility that you need to potentially work in an environment such as a complex health environment. So what we'd really, what we'd really like for us is to have all of the capabilities that we get from the cloud, including some of the capabilities that are really powerful in, in through the public cloud providers, such as, such as Azure and the, and the others. Uh, but we also want our developers and our engineers to have the flexibility where the flexibility is appropriate. For us, that has converged to using container-based technologies such that we get the benefits of cloud-native technologies, but our developers and our engineers can develop their own bespoke software where that is appropriate and that that bespoke software can be transferred between the different cloud providers itself. You mentioned um, the use of RO, like the Azure Red Hat OpenShift. How much is portability to other cloud providers important to you? Let's say, you know, a, a different, you mentioned different industries uh, before, if they would go with AWS, for example, or even, you know, Alibaba or IBM cloud, was that a, a decision-making uh, criteria as well? I think in, when we were looking to deploy inside help, it wasn't a major decision for us, mostly because when we, when we kind of chose to go with Azure, that was really the only option we had available as we were working with, with SA government at the time. But I think 
more generally, the ability for us to have that as an artifact, have the fact that we've got transferability, does provide some additional benefit as well. It does mean that if we wanted to work in a different sector that, in this case, wasn't using Microsoft Azure, we'd actually be able to deploy in, in effectively any other cloud, really without changing our deployment path. We would just go to that different cloud environment, deploy the fundamental resources that we need, and then uh, bootstrap up uh, another has environment for us to deploy with, potentially another Red Hat OpenShift environment for us to deploy with. And our software should effectively work the same in, in any environment that we work with. So, so I think it does give us the flexibility of getting the benefits of the public cloud resources where appropriate, but effectively manage a level of virtual private cloud through a container orchestration platform in, in basically any environment that we work with. So thank you, Luca, for that great insight. As a last question, where, where is Hard AI going next? Any interesting developments on the horizon for you? Certainly, we are looking to integrate with a variety of other data sources. We've integrated with, with about 10 major data sources inside SAHelp at the moment, but there are, um, at least to our understanding, about 400 primary data systems inside Help for a whole range of devices. So I think we will be um, just developing a little bit more horizontally in terms of that data integration. Probably areas that we're starting to get really interested in is to extend out our real-time monitoring. But as part of that, particularly in an ICU context, we're starting to see the need for uh, potentially bringing some of that processing to where the patient is. This could take the form of, of edge computing, for example. So we'd like to actually start looking at how we can deploy AI algorithms that, are, that bring the compute to the patient, where we may have Raspberry Pis or nuts or microcomputers uh, beside the patient in the same room as the patient, actually powering analytics at the edge. And really what, what we need to do to make sure that we can orchestrate potentially a fleet of these edge computers in, in a health system context. So I think we're starting to get much more into that hybrid cloud model where we'll be looking at what we're doing with our cloud resources and how we are then potentially controlling a fleet of computers at the edge inside hospitals and around the health system. So I think that's an area that we're going to find really interesting over the next year or so. Wow, that's excellent news because that's really what uh, the OpenShift platform, cloud platform is, is all about, right? Instead of bringing the data into the cloud, what mo most organizations do, we actually bring the cloud to the data, right? And, and I think we're going to see this more and more across different industries as edge computing becomes more and more persuasive. Per I'm sorry, pervasive and persuasive. <laughs> Luca Dykes, Managing Director and Founder of HardAI, thank you so much for featuring this episode. I'm uh, looking forward to working more with you in the future. Thank you for having me.